Hello and welcome to Hell is for Hyphenates for October 2018. I am writer hyphen Damien Chazelle faked the moon landing and I can prove it, Lee Zachariah. And with me as always is... I'm writer hyphen critic hyphen big nose wannabe Rochelle Semenovich. And you may have noticed that this episode is slightly longer than normal. Usually we only go over an hour if it's like a special episode or a live show or something like that. We've blown that out a bit this month. We've already recorded our chat with this month's guest, Scott Derrickson. And when you hear it, I think you'll understand why we were unable to cut this one down. Uh, no disrespect to all of our previous guests. Um, yeah, there's no getting out of this one. Uh, basically, yes. Apologies to our 100 previous guests, because this is, of course, episode 101. Everything's changing. It is changing. We're going to mix up the format a little from here on in, so, so keep an ear out for that. But before we get to Scott and his filmwork of the month, we're going to start off by talking about some of the key films from this past month, including... The Land of Steady Habits. This is the new film from Nicole Holofcener, who we've covered on the show before. Uh, this film is out on Netflix at the moment, and it follows middle-aged Anders, who's played by Australia's own Ben Mendelsohn. Uh, he is basically bored by the trappings of modern life. He's left his job, his wife, and his house, but old habits are hard to break, and the very first time we meet him, he's basically out there shopping to replace all of the trappings that he left behind. Uh, his ex-wife is seeing his old friend, Anders is running out of money, his son is a recovering drug addict, his friend's son is on his way to rehab, and Anders is mixed up in all of that. Now, Rochelle, you have not seen this film, have you? I haven't, and I am very keen to see it. Well, do you remember that kind of anti-consumerist bent uh, that was around in sort of the late 90s, early 2000s? A lot of sort of the films on the fringe of Hollywood were really consumed with, you know, anti-consumerism and Nicole Holcina has definitely continued that theme uh, which is great because she's she does it very well she's very good at dismantling that sort of middle class lifestyle in sort of non-cynical way like she's very sympathetic to the fact that people are trapped by modern life but still sort of hold on to those trappings is it like please give it is it's it's very please give mm. and very similar to enough said as well even in themes, and I imagine this was because this is adapted from a book, I imagine it was in the book because uh, it's quite a major major plot point, the idea of parents unable to relate to their own kids so they latch onto another kid of like a similar age. Mm. It's a weird theme in her films. Like I find it quite interesting that, that we start off, like he's this guy who hates that his wife liked all of these sort of frivolous things and he's immediately going out and sort of buying these things for himself. I find that quite interesting. Yeah, it's it's look, it's look, a really short film. It's like an hour and 15 minutes, I think. I like it already. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I thought you were. <laughs> what about Mendo? Yeah, Mendo's great. Look, it's kind of weird seeing him as the representation of the American middle class, <laughs> you know, knowing him as we do. And I, I find that makes it a little hard to buy because you already feel like he's an outsider. Like if they'd cast someone who feels like they were genetically engineered to be part of that sort of American middle class, like a Brian Cranston or someone, it would feel more appropriate uh but yeah mendo's just got that weird outsider vibe maybe just because we're so familiar with you know his innate aussiness mm. but yeah look it's it's a really enjoyable film a really good watch and never unhappy with a whole of scene of film so i uh, definitely recommend that one i will catch it when i can but a film i did see just a couple of days ago is a star is born Ali Lady Gaga is a talented singer who's given up on the music industry until she's discovered performing in a drag bar by Jackson Maine, Bradley Cooper. He's a famous country rock singer with a bad booze habit. 
They fall for each other hard and he coaxes her into the spotlight with him where she shines and starts to make it big on her own. One career flourishes as another breaks down in this retelling of a classic story that's been done at least four other times by Hollywood. It's written, directed and produced as well as starring Bradley Cooper. Lee, did this version of A Star Is Born shine bright for you? Well, yeah, for the most part. I am surprised by how much I liked it. I do have to admit, even though I try to leave myself open for you know all sorts of films, I was looking at this one going, this one might not be for me. It's a little shaggy, but I did find it quite engaging. Mm, I loved it. I Well, I keep thinking about it. It's a film that's really stayed with me. It's one of those sort of rare Hollywood blockbusters that's actually about an adult relationship between a man and a woman and you know, about two careers and how those parallel careers sort of um, bounce off each other, conflict with each other, what it is to, to work and to love in the same arena. The chemistry between the two leads here is extraordinary. Mm. It's a film very much in two parts, though. There's the rise to fame of, um, you know, Gaga Ali, as she's known, and then the decline of Jackson And I just loved the first half of the film when they were just hanging out, singing, making music. Um, It just has a real verite film to it for a really big budget, you know, um, kind of film. It it sort of feels almost indie in the way, the intimacy that it conveys. Yeah, Cooper's a man with something to prove. This is the first film that he's directed. Mm. But I feel like I'm going to be using the word unsentimental a lot today. But he does direct in that really unsentimental way because it's such an American Idol kind of rags-to-riches Hollywood-type story. And he tries to offset that by making it feel as realistic or, or, or grounded as possible. Like, everything from from the drag bar to... Being on stage, behind stage. Yeah. You feel like you're really there. Like, the shaky camera and... Like, I, I think he knows that it, it's so cliche-ridden, like someone walking into a bar and happening to hear... The, the person singing right as he enters. And, and so he's fighting against that with every directorial decision. And, and I think it works. Maybe this goes back to the thing about Mendo in um, Land of Steady Habits, how it doesn't quite feel right with him as this middle-class American. And I feel like I might have invested more in this film if the, the lead wasn't played by somebody named Lady Gaga, if that makes sense. Like, I know that's the outside influence coming in. I think her performance is amazing. You know, she's, she's very naturalistic. She plays the down-to-earth, undiscovered wannabe really well. But it's that outside influence. Uh, like, she's played by somebody whose name is, like, I am pop royalty. My name is Lady Gaga. So, yeah, I find that a bit... I mean, look, I I know there's no other way to do it. You've got to find someone with an amazing voice. It totally makes sense to go with, you know, someone lauded for their range or their singing or whatever. I'm I'm not super familiar with her outside of this film. I think that extra textual level of fame and, you know, notoriety brings something to the film itself. I think it actually works for it because although she's really convincing as this stripped-back, you know, girl with the mousy brown hair and... The big nose, which, you know, I did love that bit. She, you know, because you know who she is, that she's got the power to actually, you know, come up with the goods when he brings her on stage. Yeah. So I think that brings, uh, it, it makes you invest in the character even more. I, I will say the music is much better than you usually get in these types of films. I mean, the final song does fall into the trap of what these films always do, which is lyrically summing up, you know, all of the emotions that, that were felt throughout the course of the film and, you know, hint at some of the plot points. 
So yeah, that last song was a bit of a slog, but for the most part, I thought the music was really good. And I found myself humming some of it yeah. like weeks after I saw it. I've got to say, I think the last, say, 10, 20 minutes of this film let it down a mm. little bit. It's not, it's not at the same level as the rest of it, but it's a really interesting film. I, I'm glad it's doing well. And um, if you do want to listen to some um, extended kind of analysis of this film and all the other Star is Born films, um, listen to Cultural Capital. Our fellow podcasters have done a whole show on it. And it's really, really good stuff. Excellent. Uh, Link in the show notes, so go check that out. Uh, But now to First Man, and it is the 1960s, and NASA wants to put a man on the moon. One pilot named Neil Armstrong is on the shortlist. But will he be chosen? Will the mission be a success? You'll have to watch the film to find out. Rochelle, were you the first woman to... No, I didn't remember to write down the question. <laughs> yeah, I'm just improvising. Uh, what did you think? I really liked it a lot. I, th- I thought it did very well at conveying the dangers of early space um, travel, the kind of the risks involved, the rickety technology that they were using to make this momentous step. In terms of character, I don't know. I came out of this film not really knowing much about Neil Armstrong. Right. Played by Ryan Gosling, who has absolutely no sex appeal in this role, which may be intentional. I don't know. Yeah, you're right. I mean, look, Ryan Gosling is playing those stoic characters a lot lately, and Neil Armstrong was notoriously private, so it sort of makes sense to cast someone as... I guess, emotionally inscrutable as, as Gosling. So maybe it's the perfect fit. I, uh, I saw it at IMAX and I'm glad I did. Yeah, me too. But I was right up the front. <laughs> so you were on the moon. I was in Ryan Gosling's face. <laughs> yeah, look, again, unsentimental is the word of the day. Chazelle is, like, even when he's directing all of those sentimental moments, like all the stuff with the daughter, he's still an unsentimental director. And I feel much like Bradley Cooper. He's pushing against the obvious sentiment of the text. I think it does work as a character study in a sense, even though you are sort of reading what you want into Armstrong. Like, he is a bit of a blank canvas, and and there are sort of hints at the emotional journey. But, like, as you say, it's it's all about that, the visceral depiction of what it was really like. Um, I've been reluctant to compare it to Contact, because obviously Contact is a work of fiction. But, look, they are both dramatised works of emotive you know, narrative. So, you know, I think they're on equal footing in a sense. But in Contact, there's a moment when Jodie Foster lands on on the planet and says, they should have sent a poet. And I think that's what I wanted from this film. I wanted a little more poetry. Just a sense of, look at where we are. Like, you get that visually, but I wanted to get that sense from him. Like, the moon almost becomes a representation of loss, even as we're awed by it. It it, it presents this barren landscape as somewhere you bury your memories. Like, almost an escape. This this landscape is this escape from all your troubles that are being left back on Earth. Like, it's almost a place of mourning. Mm. That's fine. I I think that works on one level. But look, it is so awe-inspiring. It's the the most visually arresting depiction of space travel, at, at least in terms of... Films about the real space race. I just would have liked a little more awe. Yeah, I, I like the stuff on the ground too with the wives and the 1960s kind of culture of, you know, the astronauts sitting outside with a beer and the wives inside, you know, worrying about them but also being quite stoic themselves. I, I think um, the film did really well in depicting the cost to the families um, of the space program. 
but um, I never really understood why Neil Armstrong wanted to be either a test pilot or an astronaut. Um, he didn't seem to be an adrenaline junkie. He didn't seem particularly, like, excited when he was told he was going to be the first man. I just didn't feel like I understood who he was and that's what I want from a film that is, you know, promising to be about the first man. Yeah, yeah. I, I think we both feel the same sort of thing was lacking but still one of my favourite films of the year possibly because of all the things it got right. Yeah, and it has a screenplay by Josh Singer who has done other good movies about true stories like Spotlight and The Post. The bracelet on the moon incident, I want to know if that's true. Okay, yeah, the thing about that is it's not like an officially documented thing that happened. However, a lot of people agree that it's probably what happened. Uh, Armstrong wouldn't talk about it. I think there was some story about him claiming to have lost his personal effects but they weren't lost. And the general thinking, I believe, is that this probably did happen because you know how, like, every part of their mission was mapped out to the most minute degree and there was, there was one part where he deviated from it and walked to a crater. Okay. All and right. So, I'll forgive uh, the film that poetic yeah, license. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's enough presumed fact in there for them to get away with it. Well, onto something completely different and not at all emotionally held back. Bohemian Rhapsody, the musical biopic about the band Queen and its flamboyant lead singer Freddie Mercury, played by Rami Malek of Mr Robot fame. The film follows Freddie, a misfit immigrant lad in London, as he joins the band, then takes it on a meteoric rise to create a unique sound and some of the most recognisable songs in history, culminating in a historic live performance at the Live Aid concert in Wembley Stadium in 1985. Along the way... There are conflicts and tragedies as Freddie's rock and roll lifestyle gets out of control and he contracts her HIV. Lee, did this biopic rock you? Yes, it did, because at some point they realised, oh, we've got two things going for us. One is Rami Malek, who is incredible as Freddie Mercury, and Queen's music. Mm. And once they realised that and they just made the film basically Rami Malek doing Queen's music, it's like, yeah, this is working. And so I felt engaged, even though I don't think it's a particularly good film. It's not a particularly good film, <laughs> but the music and the sound design is amazing here. I mean, it really takes you into that live concert experience, particularly the Live Aid um, sequence. Like, that is a bold move. I will give them credit for that. Like, there's a point at which somebody says, you've got a 20-minute set at Live Aid, and you think, okay, how much of this are they going to show us? Oh, they're going to show all of it. Was it really 20 minutes? I believe so. Like, I'll have to check on that, but I'm pretty sure they recreated the whole thing. And, like, just from a conceptual standpoint, that is one of the boldest creative choices they could have made. And they pull it off brilliantly, so full props to them for that. And I think ending the film on that high will make a lot of people love this film. But there is that scene where Queen declares, we don't like formulas, we don't like formulaic art. And that is a ballsy statement in a film that is so earnestly formulaic it almost defies criticism oh my god it's so cheesy in parts i mean it just it just feels like it's paint by numbers in some ways um i read some critics saying that it was the film looked like a bunch of talented actors cosplaying queen's wikipedia page <laughs> and i thought 
Well, yeah, that's the problem with the film and that's also what's great about it because who wouldn't want to see a bunch of talented actors cosplaying for Queen's Wikipedia page? I mean, it covers all the key points and... Um, it, uh, it also papers over a lot of the key points, I think. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff I think they could have been a little more explicit about given they keep hinting at it. Like, you can't ignore the explicit parts because they inform so much of the plot, but they just have to coyly hint at them because they don't want to show them because they want it to be this sort of sanitised, family-friendly version. Yeah, it's, I mean, I know there's a lot of controversy about, you know, how much of the sex and drugs um, we see here, which is not a lot, it's inferred. Um, And I wonder if that was to get the PG-13 rating or if it was because Freddie Mercury was actually quite sort of private about this stuff and so it was an artistic decision to suggest rather than explicitly show. Maybe. I mean, also some of the band members are still with us. Uh, Sasha Baron Cohen wanted to make his Queen film a few years ago and uh, the rumour was that he was at odds with the band about how much he wanted to show. Really? His would have been a much more uh, artistically interesting film, possibly. (laughs) I think my two big problems with this film are... It's got such a strange approach to creativity. Creative people generally don't know how to depict the creative process because I think so much of it is innate. You know, people don't like getting the question, where do you get your ideas from? Because nobody actually knows. So when you have to depict the process on screen, you're essentially lost. And so every song arrives during a moment of personal crisis or triumph, often because of those moments. Like every part of the song is fully formed with just one element out of place so there's something to fix. We're left with no real insight into how these songs came about, which makes me think that they came about in a fairly mundane, straightforward way. You know, somebody sitting there just sweating away at a piano, as opposed to it being this lightning bolt of inspiration during your darkest moment. Yeah, it's very magical the way each of the songs kind of comes about, but it's kind of fun to watch that magic. It feels fake, but it's fun. No, you're right, it is fun. It's just like after a few times you're like, really, was every single song written in this implausibly cinematic way? And the other problem I have, which sort of links to that, is that in so many biopics, every character seems to view the lives that are happening to them at the time through this historic lens. And uh, hyper-aware of every moment's eventual import in history. They are viewing moments with an eye to what they would eventually become. Like, the the characters in this film immediately recognise the baseline from Another One Bites the Dust as this work of creative genius. (laughs) Now, of course it is. Like, it's one of the best baselines in history. But to recognise everything that comes along in the moment of its creation as being, like, one of the greatest things ever is a little implausible. Like, there are songs that I had not heard of. I love my car. Yeah, I love my car. (laughs) I hadn't heard of that. But based on the tenor of their discussion, I knew it was a song that was on their album. Yeah. And not just a natural discussion about one of their songs. Like, there's no... I don't know. Is there any point in the film where they debate a song that we have never heard of? Was there any song that did not make it into an album that was seen in the film? Were there any unreleased songs lost to history that they talked about? So we can see the ones that didn't make it. And so we're left with the idea that everything they created is all that made it. There's like the sense of, I guess, manifest destiny about every moment of their creation. Because we're viewing it through this lens of we already know what Queen is. We just want to see the successful steps that got them there, not the stumbles along the way. And that is particularly true when Freddie hears the words Live Aid for the first time. And at the time, his head is in a million different things. There's no way at the moment, as depicted on screen, he hears the words Live Aid and immediately recognises their eventual importance when at the, they're basically just nonsense gibberish to him. And I know this sounds petty, but it is important because we know the importance of Live Aid in the history of Queen. Mm. 
and it makes everything feel like this fate accompli and it just makes it feel hollow rather than what I guess some of us but not all of us maybe wanted to see which is how did this actually happen I, like am I making any sense no no I get it I, I get what you're saying and I mean this is perhaps a little bit related to it but I found something out about the film afterwards that I find hard to forgive which is that this whole um, Wembley Stadium um, set up with Freddie knowing he's dying and giving his big last performance and that performance um, by Rami Malek is amazing and the way it's shot gives you the sense that he's really giving it his all and he may not be able to do it because his voice might give out because he's so sick mm. And he didn't actually find out he had AIDS, they think, until two years after that concert. Wow. So that's a big... I mean, you forgive a little bit of licence in a biopic, but that's a big leap to make for the sake of drama. That, that is a bridge too far, I think. That's, that's quite dishonest. I mean, w- were you watching him strain in that performance? And, you know, there were certain notes he didn't quite hit or he, he went for a lower note than he did on the recording because it was kind of maybe a bit easier for him in the live moment. Or was I reading that into it? I, I don't know. I, I think, and I may have this wrong, but I'm pretty sure somebody said to us afterwards that that was the actual recording of Freddie at Wembley. I could be wrong about that, but I mean, he could have just gone for a low note in the moment anyway, because he was doing 20 minutes. But us knowing he was sick gave it extra tension. Yeah, that's, that actually pisses me off quite a bit. We cannot possibly not acknowledge the cameo. Did you spot the cameo? I didn't. No, I had to go back and look for it. The first record exec is played by Mike Myers. Mike Myers of Wayne's World, who famously in Wayne's World bops his head to Bohemian Rhapsody. Okay, that's cute. You can get away with that cameo. Up until the point where his character insists that kids won't be sitting in their car bopping their heads to Bohemian Rhapsody. Oh my god, I hadn't made that connection. It is, <laughs> it is so meta that it almost renders the entire film redundant as a as a biopic. I mean, that is the most bizarrely inappropriate meta joke. It like it's pantomime. I, I cannot believe that anybody thought that was a good idea. Like, at most, you do that as a blooper and then put it on the DVD. Like, you don't put it in the film. That is just... It's not a tasteful film, but then Queen weren't really a tasteful band. I mean, there's a line in the film where, you know, Freddie's fiance is on the phone to him and says, say hello to the boys for me, and he winks at a, you know, guy who's beckoning him into a men's toilet and says, I will. I mean, it's that kind of film. It's camp. Um, it's kitsch. It's actually really a lot of fun. And it'll make you want to listen to some Queen again and realise how much of a fan you probably are in the closet about Queen. In the closet is an interesting term. <laughs> but, look, you're right. Like, the moments from the last few days where I haven't been uh, humming the songs from A Star Is Born, I've basically just had Queen stuck in my head. So it's effective. Like, it's probably going to make people want to buy their albums which is probably the point of the film, given the band members are producers. Fat Bottom Girls, I mean, it's going to send you back to that one for sure. (laughs) All right, joining us now is this month's guest. He is the filmmaker behind The Exorcism of Emily Rose, The Day the Earth Stood Still, Sinister, Deliver Us From Evil, and Marvel's Doctor Strange. It's writer, producer, and director Scott Derrickson. Scott, welcome. Well, thank you. Good to be here. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to have you on. Uh, very excited to chat to you about uh, one of the filmmakers who presumably is a big influence on you. Who, uh, who have you chosen to talk about on the show? Well, uh, at first I chose Kurosawa, my favorite film director, but someone already 
done done him apparently. <laughs> yep. So uh, so I uh, opted for my uh, dear friend and filmmaking mentor, uh, Vim Vendors. Brilliant. So you wonderful choice. <laughs> you've, very exciting choice. Uh, you've you've actually worked with him before. When you said mentor, when you emailed me and said mentor, I thought you meant in the sense of his films were a big influence on you, and then late, later discovered you you'd actually worked with him on a film. Yeah, I've worked with him on a film, and um, and he's one of my closest personal friends. Um, kind of a godfather to my children. Oh wow! <laughs> so yeah, yeah, I have a I have a I have a long and uh, and uh, beautiful relationship with with them. I know him very well, and know his films films very well. Fantastic. So so did you were you a, a big fan before you got the chance to work with him? How did that uh, personal connection come about? I was, in fact, when I um, coming out of undergraduate college uh, to get into USC Film School, where I ended up attending, um, I had to write. Part of my application process was I ha- was uh, that I had to write a critical essay of a film of my choice, and the, the critical essay that I wrote was on Wings of Desire. Hmm. Um, so that was um, before I met him. At that time, it was probably my very favorite film and you know the way i got to know him was was a, a bit of synchronous happenstance M- my wife was a pediatric oncology nurse um at children's hospital los angeles and sang in a church choir with a, another dear friend of mine named ina lee who was vim's assistant and so ina and uh, my wife became good friends and vim uh, had recently moved to Los Angeles with his wife, Donata, and wanted to make a short film about a child with a terminal illness. And, of course, uh, my wife was a pediatric cancer nurse, mm. so she knew lots of them. And uh, they they actually got to know each other first. So it wasn't, a, it wasn't a connection through the film business or anything like that. And, you know, this is, I mean, this is a long time ago. This is uh, around the late 90s, early 2000s, somewhere in there. Right. And uh, and then they just hit it off. They got they just really liked each other and and uh, had a, a real connection. And there was a patient of my wife's that that Vin became very close to. Um, still is close to. She's she's a survivor, a cancer survivor, and you know we are, we're all still close to her. But as a result of that, them being new to Los Angeles, of course, they had a, a number of friends in in music and film that that they they knew but we lived close to them and we just started hanging out and, and we started uh, uh spending a lot of time with them and over about a 10 12 year period you, you know we became i think the closest friends that that uh Vim and his wife had in los angeles and so you know he was there as a, as a as a good friend before my filmmaking career took off and then was was here in la uh as it started to take off and then our friendship has, has continued on i flew back to germany for his 60th birthday party and hmm. he and i still he and i still uh connect as much as possible but they're uh they're dear friends uh them, them and his wife Tanana. i wonder scott if that makes it difficult for you to talk about his films in a critical way i mean it, does that friendship affect the way you you view his work um i i mean i i i, I think that you know the vast majority of films that he made i had seen before then, and of course, I've seen everything he's been making since then, um, and 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 worked with him. So yes. no, I don't. I don't think so. I think that that you know, I think filmmaking from an auteur director 
especially a European auteur director can only be better understood by personally knowing the filmmaker. You know, I think it, it just gives me a little, a little extra insight probably into, into his films than the average person. But it certainly, it certainly didn't change any of the opinions I had of his previous work that I knew before I met him. And it only reinforced, I think my love for the, those movies and, and how I understood them. Mm. Mm. I, uh, I had seen a handful of his films before you picked him, but this was one of those uh, fantastic instances where it, you know, being able to do this episode gave me an excuse to go back and really dive into his filmography. Obviously, everyone talks about Wings of Desire as, you know, one of the great works, and it's, I have to say, it's immediately become one of my favourite films of all time. It's very rare that, you know, I've seen so many films, I don't know, so many have affected me and sort of, uh, sort of formed... The, the basis of your film loving and you sort of hold on to those classic ones. It's very hard for, I mean, new works to sort of penetrate that barrier and yet Wings of Desire just, I, I think my jaw was open for the entire film. I didn't even write any notes on it. I couldn't actually almost, I couldn't critically evaluate it because it, it left such a uh, an intense mark on me. Yeah, I, I think that that... Um... You know, well, there, there's a handful of films that I have superlative statements about. Kurosawa's Ikiru is my favorite film, and I always refer to that as the most meaningful film ever made. Mm. I always refer to Wings of Desire as the most beautiful film ever made. I really think it is. I, I don't think that anyone has ever made a more beautiful film than that. And beauty on, you know, variety of levels and beauty in its aesthetic form, beauty in its humanity, beauty in its in its uh, meaning. You know, it is a film that was reaching into the ineffable and, and grasping it and translating that on, onto the screen. It's just it's just one of the few films that I would I would rank up there with 2001 Space Odyssey mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, films like that that feel like, you know, they exceed what any one artist should be able to accomplish, and yet they do. Mm, I mean, it's it's one of those films that you can actually call sublime and ravishing, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. And I think that um, that the difference between the handful of other films that I, I would say make me feel that way, there is a weird accessibility to that film. You know, the... the I think that the other film I would like, I would compare it to 2001 A Space Odyssey and I would compare it to Terrence Malick's Tree of Life, mm. you know, but, bo but both of those films are perplexing as well as sublime and transcendent and Wings, Wings of Desire. I think the thing that makes it uh, stand even above the aforementioned movies is that it's so accessible. You know, it's not a hard film to grasp. It's not, um, it's not perplexing. It's not confounding. It, it is very present and gettable. And yet you, you are in the experience of watching it, you know, ushered into, into, as you do, to use your word, the sublime, you know, and I, and I've, I've seen that film, you know, six or seven times maybe in my life. And, and, and that's my experience every time I've watched it. How do you feel about Far Away So Close? Because it, it's very difficult to make a sequel to a classic. And he, he only made that six years later. It was a, it was a relatively quick turnaround. Um, how, how do you feel about the sequel? I mean, it pales in comparison, of course, but um, he knows that. Um, in fact, I, re I remember listening to the audio commentary for that movie, and, uh, and the last image of it is this, this you know, boat going down a, a, a river 
and and on the commentary track he 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 says he doesn't say anything um, uh, self-deprecating or disparaging about the film itself as he says <laughs> during the commentary track. And at that very end, he says this this image of this kind of clunky old boat uh, drifting away is a good analogy for this film. This and he says something like, you know, this troubled, complicated old friend. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I, I just loved that. It was because. He's not at all precious about about his films. He, he he sees them as they are. So I think that that was a film that you know that fell short of of what he was after. One of the things that that Roger Ebert said about him, um, I don't remember what film he was reviewing, but he he said that Vim is a a director whose you know reach sometimes exceeds his grasp. And I think that that's true. But I I think it is true because he is he is never grasping. For anything but you know the unspeakable and the unreachable and and the unreached and and uh, when he when he grasps it uh, he makes some of the great art in cinema history mm. and when he doesn't you know the 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 worst you get is a really interesting failure. <laughs> mm. I could I could certainly see. I mean I, I was surprised at how much I loved uh, Far Away So Close the sequel um, because I, I wasn't expecting it to be a, a mark on the original and uh, and I found it it really compelling in, in, a, in a very different way but I, I thought the justification for making a sequel was really solid I think you know he made Wings of Desire which is about people sort of living in two states or two sides of a divide he made that while Berlin was still separated and then the wall fell by the time he made the sequel and so it felt like it the perfect time to revisit the sort of uncomfortable, joyous, but not always successful melding of these two worlds. Well, th- this is, you know, this point that you're making get, gets to the heart of how he makes his films uh, and how every movie that he makes originates because he, he really begins, I think, well, I know, the majority of times he, he begins with a place. He has such a profound sense of place and that's reflected in his photography, you know, his world-class photography that is, I think, growing in, in its popularity and, and critical praise. I went to a show of his at the Guggenheim years ago that was just spectacular. These giant panoramic photographs that he takes and his wife Donata is a professional photographer also. But he starts with a sense of place and, and he travels the world. He's a traveler and and has been everywhere and, and is always moving about looking for interesting places. And the movies that he makes are always rooted in a place. And each film is a story that could only take place in that location. And that's a unique thing to him because he never tells, he, he never tells a story, uh, a narrative story that or a documentary for that matter that could exist anywhere else other than that particular place and he when when he and i spoke about um about wings of desire i remember talking to him about that and he you know he had done a, a in different works in germany as a young filmmaker and and w- was exploring other places around the world and with wings of desire you know he had wanted to make a film about berlin where where he lived at the time and it's where he lives now it's his home it's as close to a home city as, as he's had and he could not find a way into the complexity of the city. He wanted to make a movie about Berlin and he thought about making, but the, the city divided was too complicated. It was, there was too much to it. Like what point of view could you take? And he had thought for a while about um, using children, 
as a as a way into it and making it really a film you know that where you're you're seeing berlin through the eyes of children and that becomes your 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 view into the into the space and then you know he carries around like a little moleskin book with his notes in it and everything and 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 then one day he just wrote in that little book angels with a question mark <laughs> you know and that was that was the genesis of wings of desire because what he was looking for uh, was was a perspective, a point of view that would allow him to capture the fullness of that city, and that was the the genesis of that movie, uh, and the genesis of the whole spirituality of those angels was 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 still about seeing. It was still about a way of viewing, you know, the material realities and and the, the people of that of that location. Yeah, I mean, yeah, definitely rooted in in locations, as you say. He's also really into the idea of road trips and road movies. You know, obviously he's got the road movie trilogy, but, you know, so many of his, particularly his early films, some of his later ones, focus on somebody travelling somewhere. Watching, you know, the road movie trilogy, watching uh, Wings of Desire and his documentaries, and noting that there were two sort of aspects, I felt, two key aspects to to his films. And one was he loves travelling, he loves roads, and he loves silent observers. You know, he makes films about people watching uh, that documentary salt of the earth is about a photographer going to these amazing places and observing. So he makes films about observers. And I was reading his book, uh, the logic of images where he sort of talks about all the films he made and how he got started. And he, he talks about making films from a very young age at 12 years old. He had an eight millimeter camera and he was filming out the window cars and pedestrians. And his father asked him what he was doing with the camera and he said, can't you see I'm filming the street? And his father said, what for? And he had no answer. And he's, and, and I love that origin story because it's about the road, but it's also about quietly observing and not trying to affect what's going on. He does, didn't have actors. He was just looking at the street. And it's like, it's yeah, the perfect that, origin story. It's, it, that's so, that's so befitting. I mean, I, I've, um, I've been all over the world with him, you know, I've, I've, when my son Atticus was born, like he was the first person to come to the hospital, you know, the very first person, wow. uh, he and his wife. And, and I remember a few months later having him strapped to my chest and walking. Your, you your know, son, not Vim. My son, no, gotcha. my son Atticus uh, was strapped to my chest, not Vim. He was a little big, <laughs> But no, we walked, we were in New York and we walked like 50, 60 blocks together. I've walked many streets in LA with him. Uh, you know, I've walked the streets of Berlin with him. I've walked the streets of Tokyo with him, you know. And so, so it, it, there is a, just an inherent quality to him as a person that if you're going to be around him, you're going to end up in a sork and walk and talk. But also <laughs> a lot of times, a lot of times it's, it's just the opposite. A lot of times it's just a walk in silence, you know, because he is such an observer and, and, and he's very shy, you know, he's a quiet guy, but that, that sense of um, looking and observing and, and, uh, and traveling, that's, that's the essence of who he is for sure. Hmm. I wonder, Scott, um, what it is that you particularly like about those early um, road movies, the trilogy. Alice in the Cities, The Wrong Move, and Kings of the Road. Well, I think that, that, you know, they were, obviously they were a part of the times to start with, you know, that the idea of the road and the idea of the meaning of traveling the road is, is, is very American, you know, the whole, the whole westward travel, you know, so many stories are about move, American stories are about movements across America mm -hmm. in various time periods, but that took on a very distinctive and, and unique meaning 
in the late 60s when Vim started really making movies and uh, with Jack Kerouac's On the Road, of course, and, and then Easy Rider in 1969. And, and Vim was always very attuned to Hollywood cinema and what was going on in Hollywood cinema and, and, and loved that. And I think that that those early movies were, you know, a young German filmmaker's way of adapting this Kerouac, Dennis Hopper, you know, kind of uh, sensibility that was that was setting in, which is um, get out in the world and see what's happening. But also, what is reflected in that era is the influence of ideas of the time, particularly like French existentialism and and the, the idea of personal angst and malaise and the searching soul, you know, searching in a land, in a lost land where where answers can't be found. There's only experience. Those ideas are are really embodied in in only a few great works of art. And and, and I you know, when I think of that, I the, the, the ones I think of is what I've just mentioned, Kerouac and and Easy Rider and and Vim's uh, Road trilogy. But I also like, you know, like with Alice in the Cities, the idea of the American, you know, the the or the, 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 the displaced, angst filled character in America. And I like I remember talking to Vim about um, 9-11 and you know and after because he he was invited in it's a whole nother conversation but he was invited in and sort of snuck in right after 9-11 to ground zero and by you know the, there was one photographer appointed by the mayor to to document the immediate aftermath of the of the towers falling and the rescue efforts and all of that and and he was a friend of vim's and he got vim in there very early on so vim took some of the most spectacular photographs of Ground Zero that exist, wow. and and I remember talking to him about that, and he was talking about how, you know, his, his own relationship with those towers as a, as a as a place, mm-hmm. and his association of New York to those towers, because in Alice in the Cities, you can see those um, towers being built. Um, there's shots of them with the cranes on top, mm-hmm. you know, getting mm-hmm. constructed. And uh, and the fact that he photographed in in one of his first great films and deliberately framed the the, the the skyline of New York City with the construction of those towers, you know, and then ended up so many years later at Ground Zero with his panoramic lens filming these incredibly you know horrific and nightmarish photos of the devastation of that. But I remember him sa- saying to me that he you know he had such a strong sense that 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 place would recover the place would recover that it would be a new place and of course it's become i think the most beautiful memorial in america if you've ever been to the 9-11 memorial it's absolutely um breathtaking you know it's beautiful wow yeah I, yeah that that story about him filming there is or taking photographs there is extraordinary I, i'd never heard that yeah in fact there's a there, there you know he held those photographs back for a long time you know because there was a pretty long period of time where New Yorkers in particular just didn't want to see more 9-11 imagery. Mm. So he released a lot of his photos, like the Guggenheim exhibit that I saw in New York. Um, they weren't there, but they're they're available to be seen now. And there's one in particular that where the reflected light from the sun is bouncing off a nearby uh, building and putting these god rays of light out over this um, Dantean hellscape. <laughs> and, and, and it's a beautiful contradiction and that and I remember him talking about how he felt the hope of recovery and uh, that this place would recover the place would recover and uh, and you know all that goes back to just um, these road movies and traveling you know from one place to another and 
and uh, and sometimes the traveler is more displaced than others, and sometimes the traveler is caught up in in a particular place. But always the the story that unfolds can, again could only only take place in, in that in that particular area. But I also think this is the last thing I'll say about it. You know, is that you know my own um, I don't I don't even know how much I've thought about this in, in reference to Vim's work, but I really do think that that the best analogy that exists for human life is the analogy of pilgrimage or hu- humanity, you know, the human life, uh, the, a human being as a wayfarer, as a traveler, as a pilgrim. Life is a road, you know, and I really believe that. I think that, that it is the most wholesale analogy that I can ever use about my life. You know, where am I on this path? Which way am I? Which path am I taking? And I, you know, I, I wear a necklace that's made of forged carbon. It's a tire track, you know. <laughs> I'm always, I'm, I'm like, I'm fiddling with it, with it right now as we're talking. And I, you know, because it always reminds me of, you know, I'm on a journey. I'm on a path, and life is is exactly that. It's it's always a journey forward, you know, from one place to another place, even if that's purely internal. And even when it comes to religion, you know. Like Bob Dylan talks about how he he believes in the religion of the road, and I understand what he means by that. You know, so I think this um, American notion, and I think distinctively American notion of the road trip and the meaning of of traveling, was something that he you know really internalized and has carried through his entire career. There are so many hidden gems in his filmography. Like I I was watching you know, one of his first films, The Goalkeeper's Fear of the Penalty, thinking, why isn't this one of the most lauded films of his filmography? And then kept going and discovered it was because he made several films that were even better. But um, there was... Uh... That's, actually, that's actually not why. Oh, isn't I, it? I, I, I can tell you the reason why that yeah. film is not better known. The reason that film is not better known was because it's a great, it's a great film. And uh, being a novice filmmaker at the time, he put all these uh, classic rock songs. You know, he's. I, I've never known anybody who loves music more than me, besides <laughs> Vin. Right. He, he loves music more than me. You know, and we're both diehard Bob Dylan fans. And you know, a lot of these great musicians. Um, you know, Lou Reed is. You know, shows up in Wings of Desire. Yeah. I mean, he just. You know, a lot, a lot of these guys are, are friends of his. But but um, uh, he put all these you know, classic rock songs. I think it was like Roy Orbison and I think the Beatles and, you know, these, <laughs> and he didn't realize that, you know, he had to license those in order for the film to be seen. And so the film was unreleasable and could not be shown in public for literally decades. And, and then as he got older and more successful, he had enough money uh, and technology caught up where, you know, pro tools, you know, systems were able to isolate the music tracks and, you know, because it was all mixed into mono or stereo tracks on the original film, mm. but he was able to extract those music tracks and replace them with score, um, with his own with his own songs, you know, that, uh, that somebody else had recorded. And then once he did that, then the film was releasable again. So if you, if you see the movie now, you're not seeing it with all those classic songs in there because he could never, no one could ever afford to pay for those. Because right. uh, the movie was a sensation mm. when it came out was the thing that launched his career but the reason why it was unwatchable you know for decades was because it was illegal to distribute it i, I knew that uh, about his graduating film summer in the city i didn't realize it was also the case with uh with goalkeeper that's really yeah. interesting particularly given like his love of music that you talk about his first few films always feature somebody 
at a jukebox. I think he even, in Alice in the Cities, I think he's credited, I couldn't find him in there, but he's credited on IMDb as Man at Jukebox. <laughs> but the, uh, the the music thing, I loved seeing in Wings of Desire, you know, for the, the Australian connection, uh, Nick Cave and Roland S. Howard turn up and uh, segueing into, into his next film, Until the End of the World, which is partly shot in Australia... Um, just seeing all these faces uh, that, are, that are so familiar to Australian audience, you know, Ga- David Gilpilil, Ernie Dingo, this won't mean much to you, but Flacco, <laughs> Paul Livingston shows up. It's uh, it, yeah, he, he just he just I mean, in his travels, he he collects great artists. <laughs> you know, yeah. he just collects them and and uh, and and places them, you know, throughout his movies. Uh, in, in in whatever way is appropriate, but they're and but they never. What's great is they never really play like cameos. They they just play like the right person in that in 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 that particular place. Mm. It always makes sense that they're there, you know. It, yeah, and it's it's such a a fascinating film. There's there there are lots of different cuts. I saw the two and a half hour version. There's a two hundred ninety five minute or five hour cut. IMDb says the original cut was 20 hours long, which feels like a combination of urban legend and people not understanding how rough cuts work. But you, you, you've yeah, talked that, about... That, that, that's not true. I know that whole story. Yeah. Um, well, for, first of all, I'll, I'll start by saying that, you know, in my opinion, there are two films that, that represent the most remarkable difference between a studio cut and the director's cut. And one of them is, is Sergio Leone's Once Upon a Time in America the American cut release is unwatchable. It's a bad movie. You know, the director's cut is a cinema masterpiece. And and I think the same thing about Until the End of the World. I saw that at the New Art Theater when it came out and was really disappointed. You know, I, I, I thought it was very dry and felt really long, actually, you know, because you know, even though it was still two and a half hours and mm-hmm. very, very jumpy and didn't hold together very well. And I was after wings of desire and knowing that he had gotten this big budget for it and traveled to five continents. I I was very excited for it. And, uh, and of course it was the, it was the studio that forced him to, to cut that down. I think that his four and a half hour cut is an absolute masterpiece and it's amazing. It feels half as long when you watch it, the rhythm of it is so, you know, entrancing that, that uh, when it's over, you don't feel like you've, you've watched a four and a half hour film. But what he did on that, which is just incredible because I've never heard of a director doing this before. He, um, he, he, uh, you know, he was forced to cut it down to two and a half hours. And so uh, having a long view of, of his own cinema, he stole the negative (laughs) from the studio vault and conformed the negative to his four and a half hour cut. So he cut his, his master negative. He cut the negative and made the negative, um, his cut and then made what's called a dupe neg. So he made a copy of the negative. Um, and then from that copy of the negative cut the two and a half hour cut and finished the movie for the studio. But he always kept and always had in his own possession, the cut negative of his own cut. Wow. And it wasn't until it wasn't until and I remember when this happened, I think because I think he did this I think he did this when he was in LA. He got enough money, he had just put got you know, had gotten enough money together that he had, could afford to finish the film the way he wanted it. And so he paid for it himself and he you know, remixed the film and and uh and re rescored it and, and that's how that cut of the movie exists. You know, it was because he he did not want to 
uh, have that two and a half hour cut be the only cut that existed out there, and <laughs> and uh, I think four and a half hour cuts amazing. I saw it in the theater actually, so I, that's it was in L.A. because I I was at the Egyptian theater in L.A. when I think he at one of the first screenings of it. It was incredible. Wow. The uh, just just to to delve into uh, the trivial for a second. Um, speaking of directors' cuts being superior to theatrical cuts or the studio cuts, uh, we talked Ridley Scott last month on on last month's show and. You know, oh, he, did you talk about Kingdom of Heaven? We talked, yeah, we talked Kingdom of Heaven. Still, we talked. I'm still mad about that. On the director's <laughs> cut, of, I love it. On the director's cut, he does a special presentation just to bitch about the theatrical. Yeah, <laughs> so great. He's like so mad. Yeah, yeah. Because uh, his cut of that movie is really beautiful. It really is. It is. Yeah. It is. I, I reconnected with a lot of films I hadn't liked originally by going back and just watching the director's cuts. But um, it, it's interesting that his most recent film uh, is All the Money in the World about John Paul Getty III. And Vendor's The State of Things is basically the only film that happens to star John Paul Getty III. Um, so it was one of those <laughs> nice little connections. Um, uh, right. And, and that's a film I love, and I felt I was watching it thinking, God, this feels like a Jim Jarmusch film, almost. And then discovered that leftover film stock from State of Things was used on Stranger Than Paradise. So, you know, everything's connected. We live in this holistic film world where everything sort of mixes in. But um, I think we do have to to jump to Paris, Texas, which is sort of one of the, the other great classics from his, uh, his filmography. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, um, unbelievably beautiful film. And that was the one he, he won the Palm d'Or at the film at the Cannes film festival for that movie. Mm. Um, one, one of the great road movies ever made, you know, I think, I think it's a road movie, the best of his career. You know, yeah. really, I have a, I have, I, I, it's funny too. I was mentioning what a Bob Dylan fan I am. Um, that's so random, but I, 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 per, I purchased two original sketches by Bob Dylan because, you know, he does all this really wonderful artwork and, and, and sells it through a gallery in, in, uh, in Europe. And I got a call from them one day. He said, he called me from this art gallery and he said, uh, he said, Scott, there's, I'm at this art gallery in London and, and, uh, and this all this Bob Dylan work and it's amazing. But he painted a picture and drew a sketch from a frame of Paris, Texas, and it's on sale. And I said, well, I said, what? And he says, yeah, it's, it's, just, it's a painting. It's, it's of the, one of the hotels and it's the street. And, and he said, and I just I had to call you because I was thinking about buying it. But then I was like, I'm not going to buy it. But I thought maybe Scott will buy it. <laughs> <laughs> That's so amazing. So he called me and I contacted the gallery and the painting, I think, was too expensive. And of course, and I was like, "Well, did he did he ask your permission?" He goes, "No, of course not. He didn't ask me permission, and he didn't give me any credit." <laughs> <laughs> so he just he, Bob Dylan just ripped off his image, and uh, and so uh, this, I, I the painting was I remember how it was so expensive. Uh, I, so I didn't buy the painting, but I did buy the sketch. So I have an original sketch hanging 15 feet from me here in my office. That's of uh, that Bob Dylan drew. Uh, by clearly by freeze framing a, a shot from Paris, Texas, and drawing it, and then selling it out, out of a museum. Wow! <laughs> yeah. it's still such a great. Um, the thing about that film that I love so much is the last twenty minutes of it. You know, this amazing extended conversation between Harry Dean Stanton and Nastasia Kinski. I, I don't think I've ever seen anything quite like that 
on film. It's mm. it's so unexpected, you know, you, because you you start with these massive panoramic images of of Harry Dean Stanton wandering out of the Texas deserts in this wasteland, and there's such a, a an emotional and visual journey. I think some of the some of the highway traveling shots at sunset are are some of the most beautiful images in his in Vim's entire filmography. But there's this, you know, the sense of of journey and travel and and progress and and all these entangled relationships sort of coming together. And the fact that it then comes down to um, not just you know two people in a very tight confined space, but in a a taboo lurid space in a, with a one-way mirror and it, it, it's just and that that becomes the long protracted uh conclusion to this tale is, is so amazing it's just so amazing the way that that film works and and i i, I remember asking him about the writing of that process you know because it's written by the great sam shepherd mm-hmm. um and i remember him telling me how sam he doesn't never wants to talk about outlines or he just he doesn't he doesn't know where his movies are going to end he doesn't know where his work is going to end when he writes it he just so together they just started that movie and in in the writing process they just started writing it and they didn't know that it was going to end that way as they were as they were working on it together which i think makes weird sense because how could you possibly think that that's where your story was going to take you yeah. it's 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 just just so amazing. It's so beautiful, and I think that's a good example of a film, you know, that's bigger than the artist. Because from the cinematography you know, to the directing, of course, but Sam Shepard's writing, the acting, uh, the soundtrack, the soundtrack is Ry Cooter's uh, soundtrack is 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 one of the great minimalistic soundtracks ever recorded. Mm. You know, it's just it's just an amazing, amazing movie. And maybe the best work by uh, cinematographer Bobby Muller, which presages uh, the idea of somebody named Robert Muller focusing on a guy in a red hat. Uh, really prescient. Oh, there you go. Uh, it's all, it all it all comes it all around. comes together. <laughs> he he was uh, you know I think he was probably the best cinematographer of, of his of his era. Mm. Uh, uh, Bobby Muller, I really do. I think he in that time period, no one could touch him. So just jumping onto his documentaries for a second, because uh, I think if you ask the, you know, the average punter uh, which film of his they knew best, I, I reckon you'd probably hear Buena Vista Social Club, which was just such a phenomenon. Like, everyone I knew saw it. People who don't go to films who wouldn't see documentaries in cinema, everyone had seen this. Everyone bought the soundtrack. And you look at his filmography, and it's, it's as packed with uh, documentaries as it is with, with these narrative films. Yeah, and I and I I love how many of them, you know, are documentaries about artists of other kind, like mm-hmm. Buena Vista Social Club, like uh, Lightning Over Water, was the first documentary I saw of his when I was in film school. You know, it was him chronicling, you know, basically the the, the latter days and death of of the great Nicholas Ray and, and Salt of the Earth, which you just mentioned. And I remember I, I called them after. No, I was no, I was. He was at Cannes for Salt of the Earth. I saw that at Cannes, so I didn't call him. I, I went and saw him because he was there, and I, I saw Salt of the Earth, and I just was once again overwhelmed by the positive quality of that documentary. That that you know, here was a um, a film about this amazing artist and about some some pretty desperate things: war, ecology. You know, global warming is, is is a part of all of these things, and yet he made an inspiring movie about an inspiring artist 
who who found life through art and believed in the power of art and in what he did. And even though there was, his films never shy away. Vim's movies, documentary or narrative, never shy away from you know uh, angst or alienation or despair or pain um, or even violence. But but there's there's always goodness. There's always just human goodness in them, and that's very hard to do. You know, it's it's very easy to be dark and heavy and violent. You know, like I am in the movies that I make, and and uh, it's much much harder to to have a view of the world that is so uncynical that without being facile or sentimental takes you through these experiences into, into places of so much beauty. And I think his documentaries do that in a way that, that other documentaries never could. You know, the way he saw, the way, what he saw when he went to Cuba is not what other people would see. Yeah. And uh, his ear for music and even his editing style and how to cut a musical documentary is not like other other documentary filmmakers that that he's got a special talent and gift for that mm, absolutely and it, like as much as i could definitely spend the next half hour just talking about how beautiful salt of the earth is i wanted to ask about um pina uh partly because he's a filmmaker who has embraced the idea of 3d and and I find that quite surprising. You know, he's not someone I would have expected that from, but he made the documentary Pina in 3D, but also the drama Everything Will Be Fine with, you know, James Franco as a writer. It's, you know, it's a very sort of languid uh, film, but, you know, shooting it in 3D and, and, and looking at, you know, just essentially just people standing around talking, you know, very minimalist but employing that 3D to, to tell that story. Has he talked to you much about his interest in that? Yeah, we, we talked about it because I was in Berlin. I, it may have been when I was there for his 60th birthday party. I think it was. Um, I, I mean, I've been there to see him a couple times, and I, so I don't remember which time it was, but, but um, he was cutting that. So he brought me into the editing room and showed me an early cut of it, which was interesting to see also sort of the you know the 3d editing process when you actually shoot something in 3d mm. and uh and and you know i was i was very impressed with it and remember giving him some notes i didn't i had a title i didn't like i remember telling him you got to change the title which he did and i'm glad <laughs> and yet he then brought it to the director's guild at screen when it, when it opened when it was opening and i think maybe wasn't it nominated? It was nominated for an Oscar, right? Wasn't yeah. it nominated? Yeah, yeah, it was. And so I think it, I think it was probably part of the part of the Oscar campaign. There was a screening at the Directors Guild, and so he came into town. So I just went to see it and to 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 hang out with him that night. And oh man, was I blown away <laughs> when I saw it on the big screen! I mean, just blown away. And and I learned something about it too. About to this day. I think that it's the best. By the way, I you know I'm very very proud of the 3D effects work that were done on Doctor Strange. We worked so hard on the 3D conversion of that film, and I think you know the, that it worked really beautifully. But to this day, I think the most remarkable 3D film experience I've ever had was Pina on the big screen, and it was because I felt that he was the first director who understood how it works in in the best way, which was he took a subject which was dance a performance art that by definition distance you from the artist because you the only way to n normally experience that kind of modern dance is to sit in a theater you know a good distance away and observe and not only did he take you into it 
but he took you into it in 3D and he took you into it with very wide lenses and only very wide lenses. And I remember after seeing it, I said, I said to him, I said, um, how many lenses did you use for that movie? I mean, I said, you shot the whole thing so wide and it was so effective. And he said, two, two lenses. That was it. Mm -hmm. I only used one. I, and I don't remember what the, at, what the, uh, um, focal lengths were, but they were, you know, they were, were very short lenses and, you know, wide angle and the experience of wide angle, you know, 3d production, not conversion, but production and his even, the patience of his camera movements and taking you into it. I mean, I was there. I was on that dance floor. I was in there with those people. It was so submersive. And it was submersive in a way that um, nothing else I've ever seen since has been. It still is the best 3D experience that I've had. And I think he understood that. You know, he has, he has an extraordinary uh, respect for the human eye. If you look at his entire filmography, there's not... I can't think of one long lens shot. I can't think of one zoom lens shot. You know, he's just not interested in that. He's interested in seeing things, you know, from a wide perspective the way we do. You know, our eyes are roughly a 32 millimeter lens, which is a pretty wide lens, you know, and, he, and everything he shoots tends to uh, be an attempt to capture a human experience. And there was something about that wide angle ushering into a small space with a wide lens that made me feel like I got to humanly experience world-class dance up close and emotionally in a way that I never could any other way, even if I bought front row seats to one of their shows. Hmm. It, was, it was awesome. Just awesome. I love it. I love that film. I read somewhere that he only wanted to keep doing 3D at one point. Is that still the case? Uh, no, I mean, he's done other things that aren't 3D, so... Mm. You know, it's possible. Um, I think I think everybody who gets into it gets excited about it, but it's also uh, burdensome. It's expensive. You know, mm. it's, it's technically complicated. It does have its limitations. But I do agree that if done right, there there isn't anything that can't benefit from um, from three D production in some form. I don't think it's right for every kind of movie, but but the experience will be broadened, you know, uh, when, it, when it's done properly. I mean, it, it's, it's uh, and I do think it's going to become increasingly the future as, as the technology is, is perfected more and more. You know, he made a, a series of, of L.A. films while he was here, one, one of which I worked on, which is Land of Plenty, that Mich Michelle Williams is on. That was a little mm. tiny movie mm. that, was, um, that was made, um, uh, you know, kind of between films. He was, he was working on Don't Come Knockin', the Sam Shepard scripted uh, movie that Sam's in mm. and, uh, and the financing became problematic. And so he was very discouraged and, and he, and he, I, I actually remember him being very discouraged when that, the day that that happened. And I think Donata called me, you know, and said, he's, he's really having a hard time about this. And so I called him and said, let's go to a movie. So we went to the, what was then, you know, the Lemley theater on sunset and saw the Polish brothers movie, Norfolk, Northfork, which is a film I love. So we watched that, and that was that put us both, I think, in a pretty good mood. And then he just said, "I've got a couple hundred thousand dollars. I could go shoot a small digital movie, you know, on you know, guerrilla style, and do it really small." And uh, and so we started talking about a story, like right there at Starbucks next to the theater. And and that you know, in in lo and behold, I think it was six weeks later, he was shooting it. It was it was amazing. But that and that movie, you know, has captures downtown, which was fascinating to him. 
But his time in Los Angeles, I think, is probably best reflected in a, in a really, and I just want to emphasize this movie because I love this film. It's a movie no one talks about. It was a studio picture, and, um, and it's a movie called The End, the, the, called, uh, um, oh, God, I'm blanking. The, the End of Violence. Um, the End of Violence, yeah. yes. I almost said it. I thought, no, that's not it. <laughs> um, the End of Violence, and I love that movie. I love the, the humanity of... Bill Pullman's character and the idea of a of a of a big shot Hollywood successful Hollywood producer, you know, finding a better life and finding peace and um, meaning in his life by by running and hiding and living with with his with you know his Mexican gardener and 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 their friends uh, and his friends, you know, it, there's there's a profundity to that that I think reflects a lot of Vim's view of of Los Angeles and. And I remember him. I remember him telling me that you know the best symbol for for Los Angeles is a city as a place. You know, a place that he lived for for over a decade was a movie set, and that you know, a, a, a something that looks so real and so amazing and 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 larger than life. But you go behind it, and there's literally nothing there. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> there's nothing there. And I remember, I just love that. You know, it's still. <laughs> Still, the best analogy for the city that I can think of, and I and I I I, I just encourage people to see that movie because it was it was a, a Hollywood movie and it was a commercial mm. release and it's very very good. I don't think they did a good job um, marketing it, but it, that's another one of his films that's that's pretty dear to my heart. Oh, it, it was certainly it. one that I, when I was in high school, that was one we grabbed off the shelf at a, at a video store, not knowing anything about it, and just being sort of blown away that something could be so confident in holding back the things you know we were so used to seeing if, if a film is about a key moment it'll show you that moment but this film was about not showing you that moment yeah yeah it, it, it's it's uh you know and he's he's always uh defying expectations like that so mm. yeah and uh, you know I, I i think that um and i think just the last thing i'll i'll say about it is that you know going back to the this issue of of moral goodness and human goodness that's that's in 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 his films you know, I think that's all just a reflection of his own nature. He, he is sincerely one of the best people I've known in my life. And, you know, somebody who who is not easy to get to know because he's so quiet and, and frankly, he's pretty shy. Um, but but in getting to know him, he's just both he and, and, and his wife, Donata, they are they are just the most beautiful people in the world. And and so to go back to, to the initial question about you know, if it makes, if knowing him personally as well as I do makes it hard to, to be critical of his work, it's, I think it's just the opposite because I think that, that knowing him personally makes me even more sensitive to the uniqueness of his body of work, which is, you know, work that is unflinching in what it sees, unflinching about human depravity, unflinching about human despair and malaise and things like violence and all that, but, but sees beauty everywhere see just he just sees beauty in people he sees beauty in people he sees beauty in places he sees beauty in the in in the human story and it makes him an exceedingly unique filmmaker just that alone Mm. you know and coupling that with the fact that he has as rich a visual eye as any director in cinema history you know i think therein lies the uniqueness and specialness of his work it's beautiful to hear you talk about him. I can see why he might have liked the essay you wrote about wings, de- wings of desire. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I mean, and it's funny too because he's not a horror fan. You know, no. uh, 
he watched like he watched a cut of M- of the Exorcism of Emily Rose and gave me notes on it and stuff. And I, but but he also loves cinema, so I never felt uh, I never felt judged by him because of how dark and and you know raw some of my work had been. Just the opposite, you know. He was always just very encouraging and 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 certainly always there to give me good advice about about things. And I just I learned I, I think most of what I've learned about him from filmmaking just came from you know from conversations about his films and about movies. And that's the other thing is like when I think about him and 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 <clears throat> the ten twelve years that we we spent hanging out together in L.A. We saw we just saw a shit ton of movies. You know, he just loves movies. So we were going to movies all the time. You know, and uh, I think the best filmmakers are very often the best film watchers as well. You know, and he just loved to watch movies of all kinds. It was great. Yeah. Well, it's it's been an absolute delight to go through his films, to see them all, and uh, an even bigger delight to talk to you about, you know, your connection to him, about his work, about what he's like as a person. It's uh, It's been fantastic. Scott, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, my pleasure. Good luck with your piece. Thank you. And we'll see the rest of you next month. Yeah, no,